It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Bonnie Quinn. This week... The Taiwanese people are not willing to back down to a bully. Taipei-based Tim Culpin on the ramifications of Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And later, David Fickling on the reopening of the port of Odessa for grain shipments. But first to markets and John Authors. So John, quite the week. Yes. Wouldn't have thought so the first week in August, but here we are. Let's talk about false all clears. Is that what yes. we just got? Uh, I, I think so. Certainly, what you've seen was, I thought, an extreme overreaction to the notion that the Fed was ready to pivot already, that the, uh, in some ways that the battle against inflation was already won. Now, it's true that markets are about what's happening in the future. They're not about what's just happened. But when it comes to fighting inflation, rates do have to go up and that has to tighten economic activity before inflation is beaten. You can't just skip those steps. You have to wait for them to work out in the real economy before you trade accordingly. Um, Are you saying it's almost like the market is trying to trade both things at the same time? Yes. There might be very clear economic logic behind the notion that rates are going to go up, then the economy will slow, and then rates will come down again. We've all read our economic textbooks. And you do want to guard against the future, but you can't thereby assume that you can already buy bonds as though there's no nothing to worry about. Right, and plainly you actually, the, the the short term, it's there's a lot of problems. And you point out Lisa Shalat's points and also Ed Hyman's points, both yeah. of whom are excellent market commentators and should never be ignored. Right. Yes, we're in a genuinely unprecedented situation in an era of international finance, an unprecedented global pandemic. Any number of possibilities are sensibly open. Nobody can confidently say that anybody else is wrong about this, but there are very strong forces pushing bonds in both directions. And I think that's an important point because it is both directions. It's not yeah. like it's an ambivalent market here. It's a market that's very convinced of two different things. Yes. That's why the yield that's curve... That's a good way for it. Yeah. yeah, and that's why the yield curve is a little bit like a slinky these days, but also <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because Nancy Pelosi decided to yes. sort of complicate things, if you want to put it that way, this week. Yes, I, I think from the cold-blooded view of a macro trader, the potential Taiwan Strait issue adds up potentially to the Ukraine war plus the trade war with China mm. all at once, yep. only worse. It's absolutely not what anybody wants to see happen. And so the degree of saber-rattling ahead of her trip, which... I have to say, I don't quite understand what the reason for doing it mm. this week was, was very scary. I think you could see we had on Tuesday, we had a remarkable rise in bond yields, i.e. people sold their bonds. 
And in large part, that was because there had been a somewhat extreme rush to the, the havens. People were wondering whether the Chinese were going to shoot Pelosi's plane down. Exactly. Um, I'm not joking. That that, that was, was going a, around there as a possibility. A possibility yeah. And the fact that she just landed safely and got out of the plane caused the bond market to turn around. Yes, believe, yeah. um, so certainly you could see some kind of a, a short-term sentiment extreme caused just by that event. That seems to have gone away, though, in 24 hours, unless something else happens. China seems to have made its moves. It's already imposed economic, you know, mm. well, I guess sanctions. Yeah, they are sanctions on Taiwan. And it's going to engage in some drills. But this may not be the kickoff to the retaking of Taiwan that exactly. sort of the market is looking for at some point in the future. Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly I am not a expert on military strategy, but I've read quite a number of notes now that have come out from people who are. Both the sanctions and the military exercises are quite a lot more lenient, quite a lot less aggressive than they could have been. Mm. There are much nastier sanctions packages they could have done and they could be much more menacing when it comes to playing around with their military. So it looks as though Xi Jinping might have blinked and Nancy Pelosi hasn't. Can't imagine she'll get any great domestic political credit for it in the US, but it it looks as though Pelosi might actually have uh, won that particular contratour. Uh, yes, <laughs> they're not exactly equals, I guess, in that respect, no. but, uh, <laughs> but she may have won. So we're in August. We've had yes. this huge move in bond markets. We also saw the Nasdaq reclaim lots of territory so far this week. Mm. It's very hard to believe in the idea that this could be a false all clear when you watch what's happening in the market. But I guess that's the essence of being a good trader, right? It's a very difficult one. Certainly a number of usual technical trading measures. I'm not normally a great fan of technical analysis, but it's at times like this when markets have really been scared and when trading really is about mass psychology, that technical measures can be quite useful. And the degree to which we have had such a big reversal of such a big sell-off doesn't usually happen unless the bottom is in. And that deserves some degree of respect. The Mm. NYSE FANG Plus Index, so that the index just includes 10 huge internet platform companies, Apple, Amazon, Tesla, etc., is actually at this point 20% up, almost exactly from its low, Mm. which was in May. Some technicians would say that a 20% rise means it's back in a bull market. Still a long way below its peak from last year. But a 20% rise is in very, very liquid stocks that people know about and are thinking about, again, can't be gainsaid. It doesn't seem to make sense to me mm-hmm. and that does imply I may in the long term be right right in inverted commas but yes. but certainly in the short term there's something I must be missing that mm. the, the, you you do need to have some degree of respect for that kind of a market move well listeners if there's something you think John is missing definitely let us know <laughs> thank you John authors success is more than a destination it's a path you take one step at a time 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L dot com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. A view from Taipei now on the House Speaker's visit to Taiwan with Tim Culpin. There were rumblings of a visit by the House Speaker, followed by nothing at all official on the agenda, and then suddenly a smorgasbord of meetings and press briefings. Talk to us about what the lasting consequences of this will be for Taiwan, both positive and negative. I mean, there will be some positive ones. I guess it was a display of unity with the island. I think there will be more positive than negative. What we're hearing so far globally is a lot of pundits from around the world who have their take. You know, we're hearing from people in D.C. and London and elsewhere, but there's not that many people in Taiwan who are talking about it. So, so let me give you that perspective, and that is the Taiwanese people in general see this as a positive thing. The world seems to have just suddenly realized that Taiwan is under threat, and all of the belligerence and saber-rattling seems to have come as a bit of a surprise to many people outside Taiwan. But people in Taiwan have been used to that. We've been dealing with it for decades, various types of threats, direct, indirect threats, military threats, economic threats, and even legal threats with passing of various laws in China that impact Taiwanese directly. So the positive really for the Taiwanese, and this is what I'm hearing from many, many people, is that now the world has woken up. Now the world has got Taiwan on their radar, and they're very aware of the existence of threats from China, the belligerence from China. The downside, of course, is that the military threats have increased mm. as we speak. China is going to be uh, holding the largest military exercises around Taiwan since the Chinese Civil War, essentially. They will be ringing the island of Taiwan with various war games at six different points, very uncomfortably close to Taiwan. You know, you say that the world has woken up, but China has been ramping up things like military drills and so on. We've seen that, and I feel like, at least in the markets, there was preparation for an effort to retake Taiwan or something like that in the near future, and then Ukraine happened, and some people thought that those chances went up in the near term. Some thought that that meant those chances went down in the near term. But why would it be in Taiwan's interest 
to just poke the bear, if you like. It's predicating the idea of victim blaming. Mm. I think it's got to be remembered that Taiwan has not threatened China, has not threatened to invade, has not threatened any military action, and has not even threatened to change the status quo. So since President Tsai Ing-wen got in and then got re-elected, she's actually annoyed some people in her own party by not moving anywhere towards independence. And of course, she's annoyed Beijing by not going anywhere close to the idea of unification. She has not budged either way. And that's kind of annoyed everybody. But it needs to be remembered that Taiwan has not threatened anybody. Mm. Taiwan has not invited any of it. Pelosi wanted to come to Taiwan. And of course, Taiwanese people welcome that. The president of Taiwan welcomed that. But China has 100% agency over how it acts and reacts to things. Mm -hmm. It's up to China to decide how it acts and reacts to the visit of the speaker of a democratically elected nation to the president of another democratically elected nation. Mm -hmm. And to say that Taiwan is poking the bear or inviting some kind of reaction is victim blaming and it takes away agency from Beijing to control its temper and decide what it wants to do. So that is a great... I think that needs to be remembered. Yeah, absolutely. That is a great reminder. At the same time, is Taiwan ready if there is some military action? Has Taiwan built up enough military? Are the people interested in getting involved in some kind of a conflict? I don't think anybody in any any nation is interested in getting in, involved in a conflict. You know, I don't believe the people... Sure, but we can't live in denial either, Tim. I mean, there may be a conflict coming at some point. Sure, absolutely. But when you're living in Taiwan and you're, you're facing these threats constantly, the Taiwanese people are not willing to back down to a bully. Just because China wants something doesn't mean, in the eyes of the Taiwanese people, that they should do it. Mm. They have been bullied by China for a long time. They've seen what happened to Hong Kong. And the idea of one country, two systems, which was dangled in front of the Taiwanese people for quite a long time, has disappeared. So and the, they really don't have much choice. Yeah, no, absolutely. In the meantime, there have been some economic actions taken as well. So far, I guess, not a massive amount of actions, but still, you know, it will hurt citrus farmers in Taiwan. Sand is not natural. Sand is not going to be exported to Taiwan and so on. There's also the danger that the chip manufacturing industry might be hurt in some way by this. What is the view on the economic impact? So far, yeah, you're right. There's been uh, close to 2,000 food items supposedly banned from import, citrus fruits or various types of snack foods. From an economic point of view, it's like you know, 1% of exports, but symbolically it's important. And these are kind of traditional or smaller industries that have a relatively higher labor employment rate. So, you know, it's a bit of a pain. But one thing that I'm hearing from Taiwanese is great. It'll make us less reliant on China. There is many, many people in Taiwan who feel that Taiwan is too reliant on China as an export market. I mean, it is the world's... About 30% of exports, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the world's second largest economy and largest growing economy, even though China is slowing down. Still a very, very important market for everybody, Mm. not just for Taiwan, for everybody. Taiwanese are aware of that, but they also are a bit pragmatic, going, well, economically, it doesn't make sense for us to be so reliant on a nation that is threatening to invade us. You know, there's, there's definitely an issue there. So there's a certain amount of pragmatism by many Taiwanese right now saying, well, that kind of sucks, but it's your loss, not ours. On the chip side, there is definitely a risk. But Mark Liu, the chairman of TSMC, just said recently, if China was to invade, they would render TSMC inoperable. People who know the industry know very well that you can't just invade Taiwan and take over the factories and somehow run it yourself. 
the factories are not just the equipment. It's the know-how. It's the technology. It's the people. It's the software behind it. And China actually just doesn't have the technical ability to make chips like the Taiwanese do. We know this for a fact because they've been trying. So if there was actually some kind of military action on the main island, everybody would lose, and Taiwan certainly would lose, but China would not get access to the chips. China needs Taiwan-made chips just as much as everybody else, Mm -hmm. right? So they really would be shooting themselves in the foot. And the Chinese economy, which is growing very fast and has got a very strong consumer and middle-class economy, needs the electronic products uh, that are made by the Taiwanese. So it would be a very big, risky move to try and take action on that front. Yeah, and I almost hate to enunciate it, but China could just nationalize the chip industry, you know, once it's taken over the island, no, Tim? Well, they'd have to take over the island first, and that wouldn't be easy. You know, first of all, they'd have to take out the power stations. This is how the military strategists think about it. They take out military installations first, take out power stations, take out infrastructure. Mm. And, you know, if they do manage to lob a whole lot of missiles and bombs at Taiwan and miss the semiconductor manufacturing factories, then manage to get boots on the ground, then manage to get people into the factories and then nationalize it, I don't think they'd have much left to actually nationalize. <laughs> the, the amount of destruction involved in the process of actually taking over the factories would render them useless anyway. Tim Culpin. As always, do get in touch. Comments and opinions always welcome at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. The Inflation Reduction Act is a potential boon to many areas of the green economy. And it turns out the top 10 districts for solar, wind and battery capacity are 86% red. So, if Republican districts stand to benefit from the green transition, why the disconnect? Why are Republicans not outwardly, at least, in favour? Liam Denning has been looking at the data. Liam, why are Republicans, at least outwardly, not more in favour of the green transition? Well, I guess it's probably explained mostly by ideology more than anything else. The genesis of this piece was I worked with an outside data firm called Intersection, and we wanted to really see if the realities on the ground in terms of where stuff actually gets cited comports with this received wisdom on the sector in the US. You know, this color code we have that basically green mixes with blue, but it doesn't mix with red. And actually, when you, you know, you download all the data on where solar, wind and batteries are cited or where they're planned to be cited, and then you cross-reference it with where this stuff is being built, it's overwhelmingly in districts that are represented by Republicans. The other thing that you mapped when you mapped Green America was the emissions side of things. So the not-so-green America. It turns out that it's also the case that Republican congressional districts have the most emissions. Tell us a little bit about where these districts are. So, for example, Kevin McCarthy's district. It's a huge green energy district. And yet Kevin McCarthy is not exactly your prototypical green energy advocate. Yeah, uh, we focused in on Kevin McCarthy, obviously, because he's very prominent. He's the House Minority Leader. And his district is fascinating because, as you say, it is a big green energy hub in, in California. In fact, in terms of planned and operating battery capacity, it's the number one district, not just in California, but in the country. At the same time, it's also a big wind and solar area. His district hosts the cradle of California's wind industry, has the Mojave Desert, which hosts a lot of solar farms. And his district centers on Bakersfield, which is also the unofficial oil capital of Mm. California. So, you know, one of the takeaways we took from not just his district, but the entire project is that the underlying complexity is very different from what you hear, both in terms of 
kind of soundbite politics, but also, you know, left-right battles you see play out on social media. Well, and some of this is due to the system too, I guess, right? Because while the transition is happening, people are still working in the old energy, quote-unquote, areas, particularly in these districts. So they want to hold on to their jobs and there's an electorate to consider too. Yeah, I think there's a few things going on. So as you say, there's that element of transition, to use the word that everyone uses. And in a transition, you go from old to new. And one of the things that bedevils climate politics is that climate change operates on a geological time scale and society operates on two-year election cycles or, you know, two-second Twitter cycles. Mm. Definitely not geological cycles. So while there is fairly consistent concern about climate change expressed by Americans in whichever poll you care to mention, you know, it doesn't always necessarily come to the top of the list uh, around election time. I think the other thing that underlies all this is that a big reason why green infrastructure is built in red soil is that that red soil tends to be more rural or semi-rural. And, you know, guess what? We tend to build giant wind turbines, giant solar farms, uh, big battery projects and big plant in general, whether it's power stations or, or industrial plants. Those tend to get built where the land is cheap. You know, a good example is wind power, which is very much a Midwestern phenomenon, at least in the onshore sector, mainly because that's where the wind blows. You know, 80 yeah. percent of the country's wind potential is in 10 states you know, down the middle of the country. Mm -hmm. And 70% of the House districts in those states are Republican. So part of this is simply geography and geography being at odds with ideology. Well, and that's the other thing. It's going to take a long time to enact this green transition and probably a lot longer than we thought. And even countries in Europe are reconsidering things like nuclear now because they're being forced to. So back to the United States, if it's going to take a lot longer than we thought to enact this transition, is it possible that the electorate will change and that perhaps even representatives change their mind? You know, a cynic would say that the one thing that tends to change a politician's mind is money. <laughs> and I think one of the things that we kind of did some back of the envelope math on was saying if measures like the Inflation Reduction Act are passed and we see stimulus dollars flow into clean tech projects at scale, where will that money go? And when we think about the planned capacity for batteries, wind and solar in, in the U.S., three quarters to four fifths of that money is going to end up in red districts. And I think over time, as we see green energy facts on the ground being created, and when they reach critical mass, bringing with them that sort of investment, creating a tax base and a constituency all their own, whether it's a business constituency or a local individual constituency, at some point that does have an impact. At some point, a politician who is maybe saying, we don't need any of this stuff, a local business leader is going to tap them on the back and say, actually, this stuff is making us money. Liam Denning. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Many commodity prices are down substantially from their peaks. That's, however, cold comfort for nearly 800 million food insecure around the world. Let's get to David Fickling for some explanation. So, David, there was huge relief in grain markets when we saw that first ship leave the port of Odessa for Lebanon. Prices have come down for all sorts of grains and oil seeds, and it's a big difference from when we spoke earlier in the year about the difficulties in palm oil, wheat and other markets. But in terms of food security, the situation is much more complicated and multifactored than simply prices are too high. I think that's right. It very much feels like we're past the sort of acute phase of 2022's food crisis. But I think there's a chronic problem underlying this, to use the sort of medical metaphor. I mean, you look at a bunch of commodities, spring wheat, the benchmark in the US, it's down more than a third at this point from where it was in March. Palm oil, you mentioned oil seeds, that's down 40% since April. Corn prices are down by nearly a quarter since the start of May. Sugar and Arabica coffee, they're all at one year, nine month lows. So although the price of these commodities are still actually, you know, reasonably high by 10-year standards, certainly compared to where we were a few months ago, they've come down a, a great deal and we're starting to see signs that maybe some of these things are returning to normal. So that should um, be great and we should be very excited for the world's poor and hungry that perhaps they have a chance mm. to get food again, but that's not quite the case, is it? Oh, that's right, because I, I think there's a tendency for us in rich countries looking at commodity markets to rather overestimate the importance of the prices of benchmark commodity futures as a sort of index of the affordability of food for the world's poorest. It's certainly a factor, but one of many factors and not even, I would say, the most important factor. You know, if I was to say one factor above all that affects food insecurity, and, and bear in mind the population of people facing undernourishment who don't have enough food through the year to give them a balanced diet, it's looking now at being the highest in 2021 since the mid-2000s, about 768 million people, possibly higher than that. One in 10 people in the world, very nearly, do not have enough nourishment to provide them with a balanced diet. The 2010s saw a real improvement. That number, far from the sort of 800 million we're seeing now, was in the 500 to 600 millions. It was quite significantly lower. A couple of factors I mentioned, war and insecurity, that really is probably the biggest of all factors. And, you know, one sort of measure for the sort of human cost of that is probably if you look at the number of displaced people, refugees and, and internally displaced people. It's, it's been soaring over the past decade. Mm. It's now running at double its level of a decade ago. And in 2021, it rose 8% in one year. 
And there's a tendency, obviously, to see these benchmark commodity prices as the be-all and end-all of food prices. But actually, I mean, you know, I always go back to the great Indian economist Amartya Sen and his analysis of famines. Previously, people talked about famine as something where there simply wasn't enough food in the world to feed people or food in that particular region to feed people. And he went back at it and went back at the Dayton fans and said, well, it's very rarely a general shortage of food. It's generally actually that the price of food has has risen beyond the level of people's ability to afford it. And that can be caused by rising food prices. It can be caused by falling incomes and it can be caused by other indexes of civil disorder um, and a lot of those that we're seeing right now. Civil disorder, but even things like insurance on ships, crew for ships and so on. So many varied factors go into the price of something and the delivery of something. In fact, I was looking at the overall World Food Price Index and it's still at 154.2, which is not that far off this year's March high of 159.7. So in spite of large drops, nearly 800 million people are going hungry right now and that could rise. Talk to us a little bit about the effect of the dollar and how that set in motion a whole range of things like devaluations and so on that also affected the price and the deliverability of food. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's crucially important. We tend to look at these commodity prices in dollars and most agricultural commodities. A few exceptions, palm oil is one, a price in US dollars. Obviously, we've seen a lot of dollar strength in recent months, and that's particularly bad for a lot of emerging market currencies. These are countries that are some of the world's biggest food importers and are most dependent on imports from overseas. So take Egypt, for instance. Egypt is the world's largest wheat importer. The Egyptian pound has absolutely been collapsing over the past year. So whereas the rise of the US dollar price of wheat has driven up costs by about 23%, if you add in the devaluation of the Egyptian pound, that's added another 25% on top of that. Pakistan is not actually a huge wheat importer, but it is dependent on imports to some extent. The rupee slump has added 53% on top of that 23% increase from the US dollar price. And Turkey, I mean, Turkey is a wealthier country, but of course the Turkish lira has been in a terrible state. So the collapsing lira has added about 171% on top of that 23% increase from the from the. US dollar weight. It's horrifying. We talk about 9, 8% inflation. We're looking for it to go below that in the United States. But if you're in one of these countries, you're literally talking about what nearly 200% added to costs. That's that's hyperinflation. That's insane. You can't feed your people yeah. with that. Yes. And of course, you know, if you think about how a lot of these governments manage this, Egypt in particular, I think, is an interesting example because subsidized bread is really the central part of the Egyptian welfare state. In fact, if you look at their fiscal numbers, their food subsidies, they spend as much on pretty much all other aspects of social security put together. So, of course, what happens when the Egyptian pound is devalued and wheat prices go up further? Well, Egypt has been out in the market making big purchases of um, of wheat. It's, of course, it was one of the big buyers of Ukrainian and, and Russian wheat, so it sort of suffered from that. But it still needs to buy this because it's a sort of crucial element of social stability. And what's happening as a result of that, that is, of course, impacting Egypt's fiscal balances. So this is going to be an impact that will linger. Their fiscal balances and their external balances are deteriorating as a result of this. Now, I don't have a macroeconomic crystal ball for Egypt and know where they're going in the next two years. But if you look at the situation of countries like Pakistan and Sri Lanka that mm. have been you know, making their trip to the IMF recently, you can be put in a very difficult situation when you're having to subsidize something like that. 
in the context of weaker fiscal and external balances. Right, and then you're subject to a whole range of IMF conditions for the foreseeable future. And of course, you mentioned Sri Lanka. It's in default. Pakistan is staring at default. And they both, Mm. no coincidence, have massive social unrest, in part because people have to stand in line for food for days. And if you're somebody with mouths to feed or you've lost your job Mm. because of COVID and suddenly there's no tourism in your country, you must be living under severe stress, never mind being undernourished. The jobs thing I think is crucial and it's often underestimated. This is another of these long COVID effects. A hundred million people worldwide were laid off. The global labour force of employed people dropped by a hundred million in 2020 for the first time in living memory. And in terms of the people who are living below the global poverty line, $1.90 a day, about 97 million were pushed below the global poverty line by COVID. And so if you're in the top 40% of the world's population, your income's uh, at this point down about 2.8% below where you'd have expected it to be before the pandemic. But if you're in the bottom 40%, it's 6.7% down. And of course, those are the people who are most constrained and most dependent on being able to afford food. David, you mentioned some Southeast Asian nations that we have been talking about on the programme. Tell us where else is suffering badly, obviously many countries in Africa. Yeah, I think Africa is always on the front lines of a lot of these things. If you look at the number of people who are undernourished, the rate in Africa is just different to anywhere else in the world. Even now, where things have ticked up, it's probably about 10% of the population of the world as a whole faces undernourishment. In Africa, it's about 20%. It's double the level. So although there are a larger aggregate number of people in Asia, for instance, who are affected by hunger just because the population is so much larger, I think around 425 million in Asia, but 280 million people in Africa, really, you know, a fifth of the population are affected by that. One interesting thing about Africa that also makes it a little bit different to a lot of these other parts of the world is that because so many countries in sub-Saharan Africa are really at the bottom end of the income distribution. They're particularly disconnected from global commodity markets. So they're actually particularly unaffected by a lot of what we're talking about in terms of the wheat price and the palm oil price, simply because the incoming supply chains and the availability of cash to afford imported global commodities are simply not there. Mm. So people are in tar- really very heavily dependent on locally produced produce and the price of locally produced goods. So it's really quite a different picture to what we're talking about, certainly in a lot of you know, middle East and and Asian countries where there is poverty, these global flows matter a little bit more. Well, and that's another question about globalisation because of the fact that we have globalised commodity markets and we need to have because countries can't feed themselves. There's no way back from this, right? There's no sort of let's have our own supply chain because some countries just can't produce. Indeed. And, you know, I'd say most countries are actually better off being able to be plugged into those global supply chains being able to benefit from those commodity flows. Of course, one of the other areas that we've not talked about that's a big driver of hunger is local climate and weather conditions. Of course, there's been a very severe three-year drought in East Africa in recent years. You're just seeing in the news recently these very severe floods in Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan, as a country that's more plugged into those global commodity flows, will probably in many ways do a lot better than East Africa because despite their own fiscal problems, they can benefit from food imports. They can afford food imports, but a lot of those countries in West Africa can't afford. So these ships that are leaving Ukraine, while it's wonderful and everything, and the port of Odessa being open again with a humanitarian corridor is, is, is fantastic, it's really not going to provide that much relief for that many people. 
It will, it'll, it'll help certain parts of the world, the sort of more middle-income parts of the world, like the Middle East, like parts of South Asia. The lower-income parts of the world, they have much more severe problems and it's going to take more than that to actually solve those problems. David Fickling. We're now choosing to end all conversations. Not with you, though. Please do get in touch. I'm at Bonnie Quinn on Twitter or send your thoughts to vquinn at Bloomberg.net. Opinions and comments always very welcome. We're produced, as always, by Eric Mollo. And don't forget, we're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or your preferred platform. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion, I'm Bonnie Quinn. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.